Military wargaming is an important tool in understanding and exploring the changing operational environment. Because that's truly what challenges Blue, right? Is a thinking adversary that fights the fight that we think the adversary would present. As former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work and former Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Paul Selva said, War games provide structured, measured, rigorous, but intellectually liberating environments to help us explore what works and what doesn't across all dimensions of warfighting. That learn piece really equals lose. The first time you fight, you lose. On today's episode of The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast, we speak with subject matter experts across the military, think tanks, and even game designers. But the success of war games as an experiential learning tool is dependent on a thoughtful game design. About war gaming, its many forms, its effectiveness in learning, and its future. Wargaming has been an important tool in military planning and education for centuries. In 1780, the first known wargame was invented in Prussia by German mathematician and professor Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig. Every year, the U.S. military dedicates considerable resources and effort to plan and execute wargames that drive strategy, operational planning, and even budgetary decisions. Wargames also serve the function of intellectual exploration and development of leaders and critical thinking skills. My name is Jennifer McArdle. I'm an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security, where I lead a program on a new American way of training. I'm also um, the head of research at Improbable, which is a technology company um, that was born of the commercial gaming industry. And we deliver complex virtual worlds for military training and decision support. And a key part of my position is exploring how technology can support wargaming. And then I am just now finishing up my dissertation at King's College London on synthetic training. When we think about wargaming and why it's important, we need to break it down into two different things. So the first is, why is discovery or analytic wargaming important? And then the second is, why are experiential games important? Because there are, two, there are different goals associated with each game type. So discovery and analytic wargames are wargames to develop new insights or better understand some type of phenomena. So those could be wargames for the purpose of concept development, capability development, or course of action analysis. And these are important for a range of reasons. So war games for concept development can allow people to imagine how the military may employ capabilities to meet future challenges. Um, course of action wargaming focuses on informing current and future plans and challenges, both at the service and joint level. And this is different from experiential war games. So those are war games for the purposes of training or education. And experiential wargames are designed to instill best practices, lessons learned, and develop creativity and agility among future leaders. And more generally, when I think about what makes wargames powerful, it's their ability to allow users to transcend their current realities, ideally helping them to question and assess those known unknowns and potentially those wicked unknown unknowns that may radically alter the future battle space. So for that reason, Wargaming has often been highlighted as a key avenue to imagine, but also prepare for the future contours of conflict. So I'm Peter Sundergaard. I'm the current uh, Danish liaison officer here to US Army Trader. I've been in the, in the Danish development side of the shop for the past 10 years. So I've been 
did our center of excellence doing company tactics i've been on our army staff doing defense agreements and looking into the future uh, preparing for that and then i've been four years here looking even further into the future i i made a game at home in the garage where i could you know pitch a battle between russian units and danish units to figure out you know how would it play out and then i i invited my my flow partners over so uh, we had a few battles in the garage, and then learning started to come out of it. So it was not only for fun, but there was actually, okay, there's a tendency here that differs from all the doctrine I've been taught, you know, all the exercises I've been on throughout my career. I'm, I'm an infantry officer, uh, and, and I've been on plenty of, 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 of you know, exercises on all levels where all we focus on is on the close battle. It is tanks killing tanks, infantrymen clearing trenches and all that. But the war games clearly showed us that the, the, the initial fight was, was starting 20, 30 kilometers out. I'm Ian Sullivan. I'm the senior advisor for analysis and ISR at the TRADOC G2. And I'm a career intelligence officer who's been doing this for 25 plus years. So wargaming is important because it allows us to go beyond an intellectual understanding of the problems that we face. Too often, we simply look at a problem, we think about it, we talk about it, but we don't take the time to truly visualize it or, or understand it, or sometimes even think of what are the possible alternatives. So Wargaming does a lot of different things. It's useful for us as intelligence analysts because it allows us to check our key assumptions. It allows us to take a look at, at a problem set that we delve deeply into uh, for example, how does the adversary fight? And then actually look at it and see how it could potentially unfold. And it allows us to see things that we may not have seen simply by doing the reading or delving into, into a topic or, or having discussions with others. It, it lets you live it in a way that, that you can't necessarily live it unless you, you do something in, in terms of a game. Um, beyond the intelligence side of things, uh, I think the, I think it holds true also for the for the broader force. It allows us to test our ideas. It allows us to test our concepts. There's an inextricable link between gaming and experimentation uh, that I that I think is necessary. And again, it allows us to test our ideas and uh, and assumptions and and see sometimes where we need to to work harder and and maybe see things that we just hadn't seen without doing it. I'm Jeff Hodges. I'm responsible for the design, delivery, and execution of all of the courses at the Army's Modeling and Simulation School. I started getting into wargaming education and training in 2019 when, after I conducted a field survey regarding wargaming, I realized that many members of my workforce were being asked to perform wargaming tasks in the field, but the school didn't provide the training support for. That's how I got started in professional wargaming, as it were. I'm a career enlisted soldier. So I, you know, I'm all about blocking and tackling and keeping it simple. It's about think, fight, learn, then repeat. And that learn piece really equals lose. The first time you fight, you lose. You have to have the opportunity to repeat wargaming at any level, from tactical all the way to strategic, gives an individual the ability to think about a thing, fight, then live with the consequences of that decision, apply lessons, and do it again. 
So my name is Sebastian Bay. I am a research analyst and game designer at the Center for Naval Analysis, also known as CNA. It is a FFRDC, which is a fancy term for a fairly funded research center, uh, which means we have special privileges and a special contract with government, particularly the Navy and the Marine Corps to do analysis, uh, and in my case, gaming for them. So Wargaming, in my opinion, which is semi-biased because I'm a game designer and a big hobby gamer myself, is it provides really a powerful opportunity and venue for experiential learning and exploration in a you know, safe to fail environment, right? Uh, a lot of times when we do exercises or uh, sort of like you know, rim pack or bowl alligator, you know, you're trying to learn skills. You're trying to make sure that the equipment and the radios and the people can do the physical things they can do out in the real world, right? Can this ship talk to this ship, right? Um, those exercises are really about decision-making, about making tactical decisions, about having an active adversary. Often they're scripted as they should be, right? Because they have a different purpose. Wargaming allows you to sit across the table or a computer screen to really engage with an adversary adaptive opponent, right? Who's trying to undermine you at every corner, right? It's trying to toss things that you're not expecting to see uh, problems in different perspectives and paradigms. And that's really the powerful element of wargaming too, because it allows you to fail, right? To learn from failure over and over again in this sort of powerful iterative way. So wargaming in this great way is about contextual decision-making. It doesn't tell you the right answer for the right this one singular question at all times, right? The right decision in a tactical situation or operational or strategic decision at different points in the conflict, in a different AO, uh, under different circumstances may vary wildly, right? And wargaming allows you to build that sort of contextual experience. The way I describe it to my students at Georgetown often is war games allow you to add pages of experience to your uh, to your book of knowledge, right? Because we're all sort of experiential creatures. We all have that opportunity or that time in our past where someone, whether it was an officer, our parents, our friends who were like, you should not do this. I can tell you exactly why you should not do this. And you're like, hmm, thank you for your input. I'm going to do it anyway, right? Because we don't feel it in our bones. We don't, we don't, we haven't internalized the lessons in which they internalize because they all often have learned it the hard way, right? By experiencing it, by failing it. Uh, and war games allow you to internalize those lessons, right? Uh, just like the way books are great for knowledge transfer and huge volumes of information, but war games help you reinforce that lesson. Participants have an opportunity to explore multiple courses of action and are not burdened by the results of real-world consequences. Wargaming offers a rich learning experience that is often unattainable through conventional dialogue or research and can focus on different types of learning, both analytical and experiential. I'm Becca Wasser. I am a fellow in the defense program at the Center for New American Security, where I also lead the gaming lab, which is CNAS's wargaming capability. You know, I can learn something in a classroom environment. I could read something in a book. I can hear something that someone has said to me. But the reality of what they're talking about might not sink in. Wargaming allows us to approach things from an experiential manner. I am actually experiencing what is happening on the board or the map in front of me. Um, I am actually grappling with some of the challenges that, you know, senior uh, military planners or policymakers might face. 
I am I am experiencing that. And so I'm going to learn that lesson in a much deeper fashion than I ever could having read it, heard it, or just been taught it. So I think there, it's not necessarily about what wargaming brings that is unique, but it's how wargaming goes about it that is really powerful and truly unique. So experiential learning influences feelings and emotions, as well as enhancing knowledge and skills. So for instance, scholarly research has explored the benefits of experiential learning from a retention standpoint, running comparative studies against traditional classroom-based pedagogical um, approaches like lectures. They've found that experiential learning leads to far higher learning retention. Other studies have looked at experiential learning from a development perspective or even a leadership perspective and found that these techniques can be powerful because they allow individuals to follow their ideas and work through problems as they arise. It forces those same individuals to experience failure and work out how to overcome challenges. In the military, there's this oft-stated aphorism, all but war is simulation. And while in many ways it's a very pithy saying, there is a certain truism behind it. Militaries are primarily in the business of war, humanitarian assistance and various forms of diplomacy aside, everything that they do is to prepare for the next conflict. And this is incredibly important because we need to create those operationally relevant and realistic learning opportunities for commanders, battle staff, and warfighters. The last thing we want is for someone to experience the fog and friction of combat for the first time when sorties are flying. Mitchell Land, uh, the designer of the next war series for uh, GMT and uh, redesigner, if you will, of Silver Bayonet, which was one of GMT's first games. I've been a long time war gamer. I have spent time uh, in the active duty and reserves uh, and National Guard, really. But overall, I think it's just more the out of the box thinking and the ability to try things that might cause issues if they were for real and just see how they play out. Right. As long as you've got a, a close to real world verisimilitude, you know, you can learn some lessons there. And, and sometimes I've seen um, in tournament games, it's a time crunch. And so making decisions under time stress, sometimes you make bad decisions, right? Because you don't have time to think through everything. Well, I'm just going to go do this. Now, what I like to do is throw a lot of decisions at the player. So they have to take time to think about it. Right. Or, or if you don't give them the time, now they're going to start to make mistakes. And that's what really makes a good war game is seeing your opponent make a mistake and capitalizing that mistake and frankly, making him pay for it, right? Because it's not really playing the game that's important. It's talking about what happened in the game afterward that's important. What lessons did you learn? What scenario, you know, did, did you achieve victory? And if so, what did victory look like? Did you even have an idea what that looked like? You know, and what did it cost you to get there? And, you know, let's, let's apply this to the real world. If you had done something different, what would you do? So it's more around that of let's, let's play the game and then figure out what we could have done differently and just start burning those paths of, of thinking and logical thinking through your brain. And often the failures are more important to them because they'll say, hey, like, you know, if you win, you have only discovered one way to, you know what I mean, do certain things, right? But if you fail, you have learned multiple failure points and friction points to identify and fix to allow you to win the next time, right? So that's really a powerful element of it, right? We're not trying to provide them an answer. We're not saying answer A is the uh, the right answer and the only answer for que uh, question B, right? We're saying, hey, we're posing these multiple sets of questions for you, right? How do you navigate them? How do you prioritize them? How do you reconcile them, right? So the question is like, 
where are the potholes? Where are the milestones I got to keep an eye on for next time? But the first time, you know what I mean? I'm just going to go straight at the problem, high risk, high reward, and see if it works. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, often it doesn't, but it is always a learning experience. And that's really what games are really powerful for. You don't have to carry the burden of taking 120 men and 14 vehicles to the field or 120 paratroopers to the field. You see what I'm saying? That's that's kind of what's in my brain. If you scale it up, you go to a core level warfighter. OK, that's a set number of days. You're going to do a set number of missions and you will likely not get the chance to repeat that. And there's thousands that are participating. So do you learn? You do. Do you get a chance to repeat? You don't. This is where wargaming, this is where wargaming really separates itself, I think, from the other training environments that the army offers to its to its soldiers and leaders today. The United States Army conducts a multitude of war games annually to experiment in realistic scenarios with emerging technologies, new ways of war, and a thinking adversary. I'm Stacy Pettyjohn. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the defense program at a Center for a New American Security. Previously, I'd spent more than 10 years at the Rand Corporation, where I co-led the Center for Gaming there. I think my favorite red team players are the ones that hate to lose and will figure out any way possible to win, um, and that they pose the most significant challenge that they can to the blue team. And they try to find weaknesses in its COAs and its strategy and to exploit them whenever possible. So it's really stress testing um, what the blue team is planning to do and forcing them to react to that thinking adaptive adversary that is in its limit. I think it's it's used extensively at different levels in a lot of different ways. You know, I think we have we have games that we run to test ideas, to to look at alternatives to think about the future. We have experimentations that we run, which actually are designed to test things like concepts or, or material that, that we wish to, with, that we wish to potentially purchase, uh, acquire and bring into the force. It's a little bit all over the place in some ways because so many different elements use gaming in, in some different way. Uh, and we have things from, I think, very simple tabletop exercises, you know, some of which are, are old school, putting a map on a on a, on a table, right, and moving little counters around. Some of them are discussion exercises uh, where you run through a scenario and you bring experienced folks in to, to talk about the issues and what they may see or experience, right? That's, that's a different type of, of game that we sometimes see to some very high-tech, advanced, computerized simulations, you know, which can, can replicate a, a, a fight in ways that, that we would only dream of in the past, uh, where you can use different types of new technologies to, to visualize the fight, to, to run the math, if you will, to see how the interaction between uh, forces, equipment, uh, actually happens on a battle space, uh, to some hybrid games that involve little pieces of all of them. Uh, so I think, I think right now we're, we're using gaming in a, in a lot of different ways. You know, I think there are some elements within the Army that are, are utterly brilliant at it. Uh, the Center for Army Analysis, for example, um, always love working working with them because they they think so deeply into what gaming is and how it can be used and 
and they just they just run them really well. Um, you know, to, to, to some kinds of, of smaller, lower key efforts that are no less important. There's not a single picture that you could paint that would display Army Wargaming today. Wargaming is as discreet as the community that's using it. One picture of Wargaming is to support education and training like it. When you, when you do a war game at the Command and General Staff College or the Army War College. Another example of war gaming is in readiness. I'm doing a tabletop exercise to rehearse a plan. I'm re-looking a plan. I'm doing a tabletop to make sure that my assumptions and the facts are still the same. There's been no change. There's future force experimentation war games. My organization does analytical war gaming. They do strategic war gaming, campaign war gaming. You know, they're, they're, they're applying analytical techniques to inform their supported commander of a thing. We you know the commander asks, he says, I want to learn this at the end of the game. Okay, well, then that's what they do. But they, they use a different process. So there's all kinds of wargaming going on in the Army, but there's not an artist out there in the world that could on a canvas paint one scene that captures how everyone does it. Probably the most important thing that could be done within the Army in the larger DOD is to enhance learning opportunities across the force. War on the Rocks ran a survey last year, and they found that 96% of service members want more opportunities for education and professional development. Only 11% of those surveyed felt their service gave them enough learning opportunities. So obviously there's a big education and learning gap and war games, particularly for their experiential purposes, should be a critical tool to help fill that gap. And a key focus should be on making experiential wargaming far more regular and far more accessible. So part of this is developing unclassified but operationally relevant wargames that can be accessed anytime and anywhere, whether that's on a laptop or a mobile device. But that also means developing games that fit into the busy lives of our warfighters, games that are asynchronous, that can be picked up and played during a break or potentially during their commute. And I ran a research project last year that explored the state of technology tools within wargaming. And my findings, which drew on a survey of over 700 professional wargamers, found that we are largely missing the mark. A lot of the technology tools that are available or in use, they're clunky, they're challenging to use, or they're not operationally relevant. They fail to account for a lot of the complexities associated with the changing character of war. Those wargaming tools that were highlighted as useful, particularly from, say, a data standpoint, were often cited as having really challenging learning curves to get spun up. They're just far too complex for some learning needs. And then there's just that broader accessibility challenge. So, for instance, to use games within the Army's Games for Training program, you need a CAP card. So we really need to start thinking about how we can offer more accessible user-friendly war games that provide far more learning opportunities to our service members. Perhaps if the Army published another wargaming guide or a wargaming handbook like the UK Ministry of Defense does, then you would have a broader, a more broadly defined definition of what a wargame is. And I think that helps leaders that are struggling with doctrine to better absorb it at least, okay, it's in my doctrine, I know I'm not driving outside the box if I do something different. Another way is to encourage the Army PME, the Professional Military Education Arm of the Army, 
to incorporate wargaming as learning activities at all levels of the PME. You notice I didn't say as a course, I run a wargaming course, but that's separate. But within the PME, use wargames of any type as the learning activities that drive home the terminal learning objective for that particular lesson or module. And I'm talking in the NCOES as well as the OES. You know, the, the Marine Corps has fully embraced tactical decision games for their NCO leaders. And they're, they're very simple. It's a piece of paper with a map drawing. And they're saying platoon leader or platoon commander, this is your situation. Here you are on the ground. What are you going to do? And so that, that student says, well, I'm going to do this. And then they pick someone else that becomes the red team and say, okay, what are you going to do? Right. So it's think, react, think, react, think, react all the time. And they do that throughout their PME experience for NCOs and officers. Not all war games are created equal. Games can be designed for experiential or analytic learning. They can be more strategically, operationally or tactically focused. And some may be tailored for sustainment, mission command or any number of warfighting functions. The use of first principles thinking to identify critical learning objectives is the key to effective game design. So again, it depends on your focus. And that's one of the things that it has dawned on me over time doing this over here that you need to focus your war game on whatever you want out of it. So this, it's not a, a one, one solution to fix all problems. So if you want to, to use it to learn uh, about command and control, you, you need to focus on, on those things. Using the map, the, the board, and your imagination, you can po- you, you get into problem sets that you would otherwise not do if you just sit around a table talking about, okay, let's try and develop a new brigade. How's that going to look like? And then we, yeah, I think the Russians have this kind of tank. Does that ne- mean anything for us? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe we need to have a longer barrel so we can shoot farther or something like that. Experiential learning is a learning process whereby people learn by doing. It's meant to give people hands-on experiences that they can reflect on. So Wargaming for Training or Education is a great example of this. Wargames have an ability to capture key themes or dynamics in very immersive and memorable ways, making them very powerful learning tools. But the success of Wargames as an experiential learning tool is dependent on a thoughtful game design. And that's closely tied to the game's experiential goals and then after a fact, careful analysis of its effectiveness. So for instance, during the game design process, you really want to start with the experiential goal that you want to accomplish and then work backwards from that. Uh, The tools that you could choose to include, to include technology, um, should be carefully selected based on that game goal. So, because basically you want to figure out ways to elicit that learning outcome. You do the homework, you do the research, you do, you read the books, the articles, you talk to people, scope the problem. The next portion is like uh, what I call designing the schema. Um, the reason I call it a schema and not a model is because it often confuses people with MNS and models and simulations. So I call it a schema, but really it's a mental model, right? How does my world work? right? What is the problem? What is the dynamic that I'm trying to engage with, right? And you can do different types of schema, whether that's agent-based, process-based, and so forth, right? So I always start with the map. What's the what's the terrain look like? And do the analysis on that terrain and figure out where, 
this is a mountain. This is, uh, uh, you know, this is rough terrain. These are where all the roads and cities and stuff are. And then the next thing is the order of battle. You know, where do you get that? So obviously I'm only able to access open source, right? So I've used the uh, International Institute for Strategic Studies, I think it is, in the UK. Um, they have they have really good resources. And so you take all these different sources and you kind of claw them together and figure out, okay, this is what it looks like. And then the next thing is, okay, well, you've got a map and you've got some counters, get a rough draft of some rules to put a scenario together, go fight it and make sure it works. If it works, continue to work on it. If it doesn't work, throw it away and go pick some other flashpoint to work on, right? So if you really want to procure war games that can get at a lot of these problems, we should be doing it in a way that incentivizes, say, the FFRDC, so the federally funded research and development institutions, to be working alongside these technical companies that, say, have special skill sets and whether it's you know AI or commercial gaming or whatever it is. So you empower these different groups to work together so that you can create, you know, you can develop board games that are different and unique from anything I think that we've seen before. Um, whereas right now these communities are just fundamentally siloed. One of the biggest problems also from a technology standpoint is that a lot of technology tools, they try to address every single type of war game. They try to address discovery type games, analytic games, and experiential games. Whereas all of these types of games have very different end goals and so from a technology standpoint, the tech stack that be, should be associated with those games should be fundamentally different because you should start with the goal and work backwards. So I would encourage technology companies to take the time to understand these different types of war games and what that means. And I would also encourage, say, um, People within DOD, when they put out requests for new war games, to make it very explicit what type, what that end goal of that game is and what they're trying to accomplish and try to incentivize companies to ensure that, you know, games for experiential learning actually are targeted in a way to elicit learning outcomes and games for analytics, you know, are targeted in a way to, say, capture better gameplay or whatever it might be, but to not try to accomplish everything and anything, because essentially when you try to do everything, you end up doing nothing. And I think a lot of the problems with a lot of the games that the DoD has procured is because they've tried to do everything. Due to its experimental nature, Wargaming often presents participants with unconventional approaches or tactics that do not conform to doctrine. Capturing lessons learned from these unique experiences is part of what makes Wargaming so valuable. My game, Latoya Commander, formerly known as uh, Fleet Marine Force, it's a future force tactical game down at sort of like uh, the battalion regiment level, but the units are down to the individual ships, sections, and platoons. It's really focused on, you know, I mean, the long range fires, hinder finder dynamic. And that's where its focus is. But it has all these cards, what we call joint capability cards, that allow players to play various joint capabilities from F-35, combat air patrols, to bombers, to unmanned submarines, to mines, right? And the reason I mentioned the mines is this is the one example that I always mention is doctrinally by TTP and SOP, you're supposed to mine uh, areas in which are the enemy has to be sort of forced into sort of like littoral choke points or I mean, straits areas in which you know they're going to pass through, right? And one of the groups uh, we were working with a bunch of Marines at the time, we're like, we're not going to do that. And I was like, 
whatever that's what doctrine says you should obviously try to do it this way is the most optimal way to do it this is why it is in doctrine it's not the answer but it is the most popular slash majority answer right in most cases it's the right answer right and the marines were like no no we know the guy across the table who they were playing colleagues of their own shop um and they were like we know this guy right so we're gonna put mines really forward right uh, in various <clears throat> locations out in open water, right? And, and we can sort of guesstimate his path because he's going to be risk averse and he's going to try to stay outside of our sort of uh, organic fires range. So we can guess, you know, like he's going to be around here, right? And we're going to put it really forward. And I was like, why are you doing this? And they're like, well, we're pretty much assuming that he will take this path. And if he does take it, he will stop. And I explained to them the way the game mechanics works is that you know, I mean, there's a certain level of abstraction that after you hit a mine and it sort of does his damage, right? You can just keep on pressing because it essentially has like, you've taken the damage, you've cleared the path and other ships can follow behind you. And they're like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. He will stop, right? And I was like, okay, if you say so, and you know I mean? you allow your players to make their decisions and uh, reap their consequences. And I'm not gonna lie, I, as a facilitator running this game, fully expected this tactic to like not work. And like around turn three, the adversary fleet hits the mines and they are just thrown into chaos, all right? They don't know what to do. They just stop, right? And they're like, hey, we're just gonna stop. We're gonna regroup. We're gonna wait until we get like new capabilities and we're gonna press on from there. And the guy who I was talking to, who was doing this mine uh, sort of uh, tactic, looks at me and he like gives me this look. He's like, I told you so, right? And you know what I mean? And it allowed them sort of that, to gain the initiative back and they allow them to sort of have a turn where they could be on the offensive because often in the first early turns in the scenario, they were often on the defensive. And this was the like sort of the pivotal moment where they were able to not inflict lots of damage onto the adversary fleet. They just sort of really stopped. They took a couple damage and they sort of stopped. But the time, the temporal difference and the tempo and the initiative and the momentum was all those intangible things shifted incredibly to the uh, sort of the blue forces favor. And they sort of just went on the attack and just did not stop, right? After they got, were able to seize the initiative uh, to the point they won, right? And and we we're discussing during the hot wash and there's like, yeah, no, I know him. Like he is, he is sort of like, you know, I mean, uh, by the book, cautious, sort of, he'll do the right decisions, right? But because I know he's going to do the right sort of doctrinal decisions, I know what he's going to do. He's going to do these things because that's what he has been told and taught. And I found that so uh, interesting experience because they knew each other. They worked in the same shop. They sat next to each other. They had lunches. They had barbecues with their families and stuff. So that experience was so fascinating to me. I was like, wow, like that is really powerful because he was able to gain insight and really leverage not. The, not only the capabilities on the table that represented units and so forth, so forth, but the the person he knew was behind their movement. One of the things that has always been, I won't say a criticism, maybe a complaint about the next four series is, is people didn't really like the attritional nature of it. But I think as we're seeing this, it, not just in Ukraine and Russia, but even in the last couple of conflicts that have come, it's a very attritional warfare model today. You know, and, and to, to be fair, it probably always has been, but we're seeing it. Even if you're not a near peer, it's attritional, right? So there's no overwhelming sense of support. Let's let's set Iraq aside, right? Um, that that was just technological superiority. But you know, you're seeing this this attritional warfare where both sides are taking losses. Although we're only getting you know the majority of a one-sided picture from social media, but that's okay. The other thing is that you know we've always posited in the next war series, for instance, that that look, although we've already gone past it, but look, it's 16 weeks. 
in, in the wars either over or you're running out of all the special munitions that you had. And I think we've seen that, right? I mean, Ukraine's clamoring for more stuff because they're running out. And we've seen a, a, a massive, or at least from the sources I've seen, a massive drop in the amount of special munitions that the Russians are using. You know, they're, they're back to dropping iron bombs. And now, the, now they'll occasionally lob a missile somewhere. But like everybody expected, they're also holding some reserve, I'm sure, because this is not their primary opponent. So... I certainly have seen innovative tactics, but I would say on the whole, oftentimes it's hard for players to break out of their current mindset and way of doing things. And this is where it's incumbent upon game designers to create a game that encourages them and in fact forces them to do that. If that the objective is innovation and new concepts and uh, or tactics, because otherwise they tend to fall back on what they know best. And it becomes something where you need to try to break them out of that mindset and really immerse them in the environment with new capabilities or new ways of doing things and sometimes depriving them of their current ways of operating and some of the crutches that they use. I also find that it is more difficult for innovation to occur at the tactical or operational level when you run a really big war game. The stakes are too high. People still don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to fail in front of their peers. And this is where sometimes having smaller games with a more select group of people and, and in particular, handpicking the players, finding folks that are known for thinking outside of the box, for challenging um, the conventional wisdom and putting them into an environment where it, it really is safe for them to fail and to try to do something different and see whether and how it um, helps them to achieve their overarching goal. My name is Dan Mahoney. I am the chief of the campaign wargaming division at the Center for Army Analysis. And in that capacity, the, our main function, the main function of my division is to provide uh, operational level wargaming. As far as myself, my background, I was in the Army for, uh, I was an infantry officer in the Army for 23 years. I retired as a Lieutenant Colonel. Often what happens is they start to take more risk with those things. And so in the, you know, in a, in a and that's where you really see, okay, let's, ex let's accept a little more risk and see what that happens. Then you see pathways open that didn't exist before. And it's always tied to recognizing what your asymmetric advantage is and then being willing to take risk. And of course, a war game is a perfect venue for that because no one's getting hurt, right? It's just cardboard pieces moving around on the map. So if you're going to take a risk and try something out, that's the place to do it. To me, that's the key, recognizing what your asymmetric advantages are and trying to figure out how to capitalize that through accepting more risk and then recognizing what your opponent's asymmetric advantages are and then trying to mitigate, finding ways to mitigate those. That is where the important, powerful stuff that I see coming out of the war games as far as taking leaps ahead and thinking. If we ran a bunch of war games and everyone decided that they were going to execute the O plan to the letter that it's been written, if folks decided that they were going to do the strategy as it's currently been done, you know, we're not going to learn quite as much if we say, hey, divorce yourself from what you know. What you're trying to do is you're trying to play to win. 
try and come up with the best strategy, the best approach that achieves your overarching objectives. And when you do that, you allow players to get creative. You allow them to innovate. You allow them to really grasp onto the human tool, the human dimension of wargaming. And you end up learning a lot more by testing out some of these different approaches. I mean, in a variety of different games, we've seen people try and do really funky things with newer technologies. Uh, we've seen people try and take different approaches, uh, even as basic as uh, you know, different postures at the outset of potential war games and seeing frankly what the impact of that is on how the fight unfolds. While wargaming has been played on paper maps with physical icons for centuries, it has also evolved with virtual environments and globally distributed play. Edge cases in wargaming have highlighted new developments and evolutions, with learning AI adversaries, more immersive virtual experiences, and immense scalable customization. How do our experts envision the future of wargaming? Uh, well, hopefully it's bright and green and we'll do more of it. I think we will see more of the computer-based simulations and, and wargaming for several reasons. First of all, you can connect with people across the globe. You know, I've been playing, uh, yeah, Command and Conquer Red Alert against people at home while being over here during COVID. And, 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 and you know, that's, that's easy. That's not the best wargaming tool. It's just a fun game. But, but you, you know, you, you can do that. You can do it with everything, right? So you can, you can have your training exercises with whoever you're going you, to deploy with. So the Danish Army is very, uh, have a very close relationship to our British colleagues. So it would be natural for us to, to plug into a network and, and, and play with and against them. We are, we are, we're actually making a network back in Denmark. So the different garrisons are, are, are attached to each other with a, a high bandwidth network. So we can, we can, we can do some simulations and, and wargaming. We live in a world right now where technology is changing second by second. So I'm imagining that, you know, whoever whoever's playing the, the Red Commander, say, 20 years from now or heck, 10 years from now, is likely going to, to be doing games in a, in a different way. I'm imagining they're, they're going to be very more um, tech-heavy. I'm imagining that, that they're going to become more interactive in that way, more distributed, probably more realistic. You know, we've already started doing things in terms of replicating the adversaries in immersive um, digital worlds, right? Using using the Oculus glasses and the like, where you can move into a 3D depiction of the battle space and literally put yourself in the middle of it. You know, I think I think that's certainly well within. I mean, that's something that I'll see, I'm sure, with within my career, uh, just over the next couple of years. Um, but but I you know I, I can imagine it will be it will become even even greater as as we move forward. But at the end of the day, uh, the the thing that that I would truly like to see with with gaming is just is just a, a more um, widespread use of it because I I think it's terribly important and as great as the technology is and I'm I know that it can help us in the future visualize that that fight all the better. Um, you know, I'm just as happy to put a map on a table and, and move counters around because I can still learn from it. And it's the learning that, that truly matters. It's a trend towards simpler games. It's simpler in terms of components and, and rules, frankly, uh, and just more abstraction. Lots of people don't like the term, but design for effect. It, it may not have a real world equivalent, but you get, this, you get the real world effect. 
and I've seen that in, in wargaming a lot. The other things from the commercial aspect is the inclusion of technology. So lots of games are coming out with app support, you know, so you can play, you, you can't play the game without having the app for it. I'm not particularly a fan of that because if they stop supporting the app or they don't update it for the next OS, then you can't play the game anymore. But um, it, it, it it's, has intriguing possibilities if you're going to commit to supporting that. As we think about the future of wargaming and what it will look like in terms of the actual games themselves and sort of the wider community of gaming, my perspective and attitude depends on the day, uh, both either I'm really optimistic or really pessimistic, uh, and it depends on the day you catch me. So we'll see what the mood is today. So in terms of the games, I think there will always be a mix of manual games and an increasing number of digital games and distributive games, right? That either use AR, VR, AI, or ML, or just even just computer, uh, like digital interfaces, like on um, that either emulate manual or games into the digital space, like Vassal, right? Or Tabletop Simulator, but sort of geared towards the military. So I think it'll be a mix of both, but I'm super excited to see how digital and distributive gaming will uh, advance both on the unclassified and unclassified uh, side of the house and see how those open doors for us to see what kind of analysis we can do uh, and the different structures and formats that we are allowed to play with. So as a designer, I'm really excited. Uh, as a community, um, I tend to be a little bit more pessimistic at times, mainly because as a community, we are on the tail end of like the golden age that's sort of set the bar for the trailblazers to establish our field of professional gaming and DoD. There's not a lot of talent pipeline behind us, right? There's not a whole cadre of young um, designers coming up through the ranks to replace the need as our demand continues to grow. The future for me, which may not seem that exciting for a lot of people, but I think it's important, is the development of easy-to-use, no-code tools, and operationally relevant pre-populated content that allow wargame designers to quickly design an array of experiential wargames. So a lot of our best professional wargame designers, they aren't developers. They don't code. They build tabletop exercises or physical board games. Some have taught themselves basic programming skills and they slog through things like Vassal that are super clunky. When we think about making wargaming far more accessible, technology obviously has to be a key part of that. And if we aren't tapping into some of our best wargame designers for that, we're losing out on an immense amount of talent. And so I'd say right now there's this a bit of a divide within the wargaming community between those that are technical experts, but they're not necessarily wargaming experts in the classic sense, and then wargaming experts who aren't technical experts. So the more we can develop tools that bridge that divide, the more the wargaming community will benefit. And then of course, the more service members will benefit because far more wargaming options will be made available to them. Right now, when we wargame out multi-domain scenarios, it's really challenging to include cyber, electronic, or the information environments. So oftentimes they're kind of magic pixie dusted into the game. And if you're constantly interacting with multi-domain effects in a two-dimensional way, it does stunt a more kind of creative learning process. So Colonel Jim Pangolinian and his team at the Combined Arms Training Center They've been trying to address this exact problem, visualizing a multi-domain battle space, and they've been using augmented reality to do this. And it's really incredible because you put on the headset and you're interacting with the people around you, much like you would with a traditional war game and what's physically in front of you. 
But in three dimensions, you can start to see the placement of space assets and the creation of these anti-access area denial bubbles from electronic warfare assets. You also can see how cyber fits in. And so you can start to really see how tools like augmented reality can start to augment traditional war games, um, particularly when it comes to teaching commanders and their battle staff to think about multi-domain conflict. Wargaming's unique blend of learning styles and fail-safe environment make it a critical asset for discovery and exploration vital to the fighting force. The future of wargaming in the Army is bright. We have the tools, we have the talent, and we have the opportunity to enhance our decision-making, learn about ourselves and the adversary, and improve our training. Follow the convergence and the U.S. Army Mad Scientist Initiative as we continue to explore this topic, its future, and the ever-changing operational environment.